0: Good morning, church. This year, we are going through the story of the Bible together in our reading plan and our Sunday sermons. And a couple weeks ago on Sunday, we looked at the story of creation. We started the story of the Bible together. We saw that in creation, God establishes his people in Adam and Eve. He establishes his place in the Garden of Eden, and he establishes his rule through his word. And we saw that in Eden, everything was good. It was very good. It was under God's blessing. And then last week, we saw how it went wrong. We looked at the fall, the entrance of sin into the world. Despite the fact that God had made the world good and he had blessed his people, God's people reject his rule. They're banished from his place. Adam and Eve reach out and eat the fruit in an attempt to become like God. And instead of becoming like God, they instead are banished from God's presence. And after this, humanity spirals out of control because sin has corrupted every part of our being. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, killed his brother, Abel. Within a few generations, humanity is such a mess that God just wipes us out, saves one family, and says, I'm going to start from scratch with them. And it's not long till they fail. And then in Genesis 11, humanity tries to build a tower to reach to God. And God steps in, stops their work, and scatters them. And by the time we reach the end of Genesis 11, we're just wondering, is there any hope for humanity to get back to God and to get back to God's place and to get back to God's blessing? And if there is any hope, how can it happen? Because humanity is making a mess of the world over and over and over. And as we'll see in just a minute, Genesis 12 gives us the start of that answer, how there can be a solution but we actually won't spend too much time in Genesis 12 today. Today, we're going to jump ahead a bit in the story and look at Genesis chapter 22. And today's passage brings us to a shocking and sometimes controversial story, which is the sacrifice of Isaac. And don't worry, we'll discuss why it's controversial and how God could do this. But first let me just tell us where we're going. What we're going to see today is that to receive God's blessing, God must be our first priority. To receive God's blessing, God must be our first priority. So we'll look at the covenant, the command, Abraham's response, God's response, and then God's motivation. But before we jump into the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your work in our world, that you haven't abandoned us, that you haven't left us on our own, but that you are at work, that you are good, and that you've spoken to us. And I pray that we would hear your voice through your word today. Show us what you want us to see in it. Make us more like you. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll start off by looking at the covenant. We're looking at Genesis chapter 22 today, but to really feel the significance and weight of Genesis 22, we have to do a quick recap of Abraham's life. So we're first introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, where God calls Abraham to leave his homeland, to go to a new place that God will show him and Abraham does it. And God makes a promise or a covenant with Abraham. And the promise is, I will make you a great nation. I will multiply your descendants. I will bless you through you. All the nations of the world will be blessed. God in this promise and in calling Abraham, he's reestablishing his people. It's going to be Abraham's family and he's reestablishing his rule, his commandments that he's giving to Abraham and he's reestablishing a chosen place, the land that he's going to show Abraham and bring Abraham to God himself is stepping in to bring a solution to the problem of human sin. That is too terrible for us to fix. But just as with most of the other heroes of the faith in the Bible, Abraham starts off with a step of obedience, but then quickly fails. He he moves to this new promised land, but then a famine comes in the land. And so Abraham goes down to Egypt. And when he goes there, he's afraid. He thinks his wife is too attractive. And that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, will try to kill him so that he can take Abraham's wife, Sarah, as his own wife. So Abraham lies. He says, she's not my wife. She's my sister. And apparently Sarah is really, really attractive, even though she's like 70 years old at this point, because when they get to Egypt, he's exactly right. Pharaoh wants to marry her because he thinks she's single. And Pharaoh is on the verge of marrying Sarah when God sends plagues on Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh realizes the truth of the situation. He gives Sarah back to Abraham. And for the next several chapters, we see this pattern. God makes great promises to Abraham. Abraham believes God. He trusts him. He does something great in faith. And then Abraham freaks out and acts sinfully because he doesn't totally believe God. And then God comes back. He reminds Abraham of his promises. He restates those promises and it just cycles. And when I say Abraham freaks out and acts sinfully, like he does some bad stuff. He sleeps with his wife's servant, using her for her body and its ability to bear him a child. And then when his wife gets jealous and mistreats this servant, he just turns a blind eye to it. Or another time he's in another country, not Egypt, and he again lies about his wife being his sister. You think he would've learned the first time, but he didn't. And this is how you know that Sarah is really attractive because by this point in the story, she's about 90 years old, possibly pregnant. And the King still wants to take her as his wife until he again, learns that she's actually married to Abraham, but through all of Abraham's failures, God remains faithful to his covenant, to his promise. And at the center of the covenant is the birth of Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. Abraham's a hundred, Sarah is 90 when he is born. And God promises again and again, all the promises that he has made to Abraham are gonna be passed down through the line of Isaac. As a man in his hundreds, it's not an exaggeration to say all Abraham's hopes for his heritage and his future rest on the shoulders of Isaac which is what makes Genesis chapter 22 so incredibly shocking. So let's look at the command. Genesis 22 starts with God testing Abraham. Just as God gave Adam and Eve a test in the garden with the tree, he gives Abraham a test with Isaac. And if you were here last week, you'll remember what Chris said. A test isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's an opportunity to show who you truly are. Like gold in a fire, a test can be a time of purification and growth. Or like wood in a fire, a test can be a time of destruction and devastation. Tests can strengthen you or destroy you. It all depends on how you respond to them. And here's the test that God gives Abraham from Genesis 22, verse two. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him. there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now I know what you're thinking. How could God ask something like this? Doesn't God hate murder and child sacrifice? And let me just say, yes, he does. If you ever think you hear God telling you to do this today, you're hearing wrong. He doesn't want us to sacrifice our children. He has told us in the Bible. Okay. And what we'll see later in this story, it was never God's plan for Abraham to actually kill Isaac. Remember, it's a test, but we don't know that yet. Abraham doesn't know that yet. And that gives an element of suspense to the story. Will Abraham obey God? If so, how will God's promises about blessing Abraham through Isaac come true? Cause Isaac's gonna be dead. And if Abraham doesn't, obey God. What's going to happen to Abraham? And then obviously in terms of the other big question on all of our minds, why would God command this? We need to keep reading the story to find out. And that brings us to Abraham's response. Now, before we look at Abraham's response, let me point something out. You know, one of the crazy things about this story is how matter of fact and straightforward it is. You know, If you've been watching the videos that go with our Bible reading plan, which By the way, they're fantastic. I highly recommend them if you haven't been watching them. They talk a good amount about how the style of writing in the Bible is quite different than the style of writing we would expect today. And this passage is a perfect example of that. You know, the night when God made this command to Abraham has to be one of the longest, hardest nights anyone has ever endured on the earth. Think about the internal dialogue that would be going on in your head. If God told you to do this, am I really sure that it was God? Like really, really sure. Should I ask him to give me a sign to prove that it's really him? If it was him, can I trust him and obey? What will I tell my wife and friends when I go away with Isaac and come home without him? How can I live with myself if I go through with this? There are literally hundreds if not thousands of different issues to work through in relation to this command. And there would have been so much tossing and turning in bed for Abraham that night, if he laid down to try to sleep at all. And the passage tells us absolutely nothing about any of it. It just says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. The story skips all the deliberation, all the questioning, and moves straight to action. Why? Because the main thing God wants us to see here is not the struggle of Abraham, but the growth of Abraham. This is the same guy, remember, who lied about his wife being his sister in order to protect himself, not once, but twice. Is he going to obey here? Well, yeah, not only is he going to obey, he's going to obey with a sense of urgency. He gets up early in the morning to go. There's no hesitation. There's no delay. He's on his way to do what God commanded. And it's also noticed it's not just a spur of the moment decision that he makes it and then it's done and it's over. No, after making the decision to obey, he has a three day journey to get to the place of the sacrifice. After he makes the decision to obey God and and has this sense of urgency about it, he has to sit in that decision for three days. I know if I was in his shoes, I'd be rethinking that decision, second guessing whether I was doing the right thing. Realize his, his obedience, it wasn't just the decision of one moment. It was something he had to keep committing to moment by moment over the course of the three days. If you've ever made a decision to follow God, but then struggled to stick with that resolution later on when your obedience required perseverance and sticking with that decision over a long period of time, know that you're not alone. Abraham had to do it too. But notice what else the story tells us about Abraham's response. It's a response of obedience. Yes, but it's also a response of faith. He's not going out with this attitude. This is my story is over. He's going out with an attitude that says, I'm going to obey God, and God's going to surprise me with how He provides for me, just like He always has. Now, where do we see this in the passage? Well, look what He tells the servants in verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go out over there and worship and come again to you. He expects that when He returns, Isaac will be with him. Why? Because God promised that his blessing would come through Isaac and God is faithful to keep his promises. And then in verse eight, Isaac realizes we don't have a lamb to sacrifice. Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham says what? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Again, this isn't wishful thinking. It's not a hopeless resignation. It's faith that God will provide. How can he have this faith? because he's seen God provide and do the impossible for him again and again throughout his life. Remember, God gave him a child at age 100. God blessed him with wealth beyond what he could have imagined. God gave him favor with the people of the land, even though he was a foreigner among them. God had given him safety and success in battle. God had, he had seen God provide and protect over and over and he knew God could and would do it again. The author of the book of Hebrews actually tells us in Hebrews 11, Abraham believed if I sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God, God will resurrect him and bring him back from the dead. That's faith. That's the end result of all the questioning that Abraham must have had on the night the command was originally given. Abraham probably laid awake most, if not all of the night thinking, and praying and deliberating about whether to obey God's command. And in the end, he decided, I'll do what God says. I'll kill my son as a burnt offering. And once he's dead and burnt to a crisp, God himself will restore his body and raise him back to life. And I will have my son alive again. And that faith was what allowed him to respond with obedience. And how did God respond to Abraham's obedience? Well, let's look at God's response. See, Abraham brings Isaac to the mountain, he builds an altar, he ties up his son, which, again, can I just point out how bizarre it is from today's perspective that there are no emotions mentioned in this passage. I mean, forget Abraham for now. Isaac has to be terrified at this point. Was he crying? Was he trying to act brave and strong? I mean, how did Abraham even get Isaac to let him tie him up? Did he tell him? Now, son, I know this is hard to hear, but God told me to kill you. So I've got to do it. Now let me tie you up. So you can't escape. And what's going on inside Isaac that makes him say, sure, dad, you can tie me up and kill me and burn my body. Like I know Abraham gets tons of credit for being a hero of the faith here, but can we just give a quick shout out to Isaac's faith here too? He was a totally willing participant in this, which is incredible, right? Once again, so many questions you and I naturally have about this passage. It doesn't even try to address them. It cuts all of that out and it focuses on the action, which since about verse five has been slowed down to almost slow motion. And here it's super slow motion. Each individual action being narrated. Abraham builds the altar. Abraham ties up Isaac and lays him on top of the altar. Abraham grabs the knife. He stretches it out over Isaac, ready to plunge it into him and end his life. And the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And God tells Abraham, do not harm the boy. Abraham looks up. He sees a ram caught in the thicket and he sacrifices the ram instead of his son. God responds by rescuing Isaac and rewarding Abraham with great promises. And as all of this is happening, God answers the pressing question, why? Why did he give this command to Abraham in the first place? So let's look at God's motivation. See, God tells Abraham his motivation for making this command in verse 12. He says, For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. See, as we've known from the beginning of the passage, but Abraham is only learning now, this has been a test. Abraham, how much do you trust God? Abraham, are you willing to follow and obey me no matter what I command you? Even if it costs you the thing that is most important in the world to you? And Abraham passed the test. God says, now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Which raises a question like, doesn't God know everything? Couldn't he know this without putting Abraham and Isaac through this torture? And yes, he did know it in advance. The word know here can actually have several different meanings including to comprehend the situation through observation, just to see it. So when God says, now I know, It's not so much, I didn't know before, but now I do. It's more, I hadn't seen it, but now I have. And I know our natural response is to say, how cruel of God. Couldn't he have done this another way that wasn't so heart-wrenching? And the answer is no. Why not? Well, because this wasn't just about God seeing Abraham's obedience. It was also about Abraham seeing his own obedience. Like how many of us struggle because we realize we fall into the same patterns of sin over and over again in our lives. Maybe it's anger. You erupt in anger over things that seem small, that don't merit shouting, but you feel like you just can't help it. It's like pressure in a volcano. It has to come out. And each time you erupt, you promise to do better at controlling your temper in the future. And then something sets you off and you erupt again. Or maybe it's pornography. When you're alone and bored and tired and it's late at night, you just feel drawn to the computer. You lack the control to say no. And you always feel terrible afterwards. You promise God that you'll never do it again, and then the next time you're alone and bored late at night, guess what? You're right back at it. Maybe it's something else for you. But how many of you have at some time or other fallen into believing the lie that growth is impossible? never going to be able to change or grow in these areas. Do you realize that at this point in his life, Abraham qualifies perfectly to see himself this way? Again and again, he has failed to trust God. His failure has led to terrible disobedience and it's happened again and again over the course of decades. And it's not just that he failed to obey again and again, it's that he failed in the same specific ways again and again. Remember he lied not once, but twice in two different countries, two different situations about his wife being his sister. How easy would it be for Abraham to believe that he deserves to be defined by his failures? And as if that's not bad enough on its own, he cares more deeply about Isaac's future and well-being than he has cared about anything else in his life. How easy would it be for Abraham to think, oh, if I failed in all those smaller ways, How much more will I fail when I face trials related to Isaac? But that's not who he is anymore. And God knows it. God's been working in his heart, transforming him from the selfish, scared liar into a man of faith and conviction. Abraham has grown, but he hasn't had a chance to see or experience for himself how deep that growth has gone. And this test, this test gives him the opportunity to see his growth firsthand for himself. Let me just say, I know if you struggle with a particular sin, each time you're tempted can feel like you're being kicked while you're down. I've been there, but that's not God's goal. Like with Abraham, each round of testing he allows in your life, it's an opportunity for you to grow, to place your faith in him in ways that you haven't in the past. He doesn't want us trapped by our habitual sins. He wants to set us free, just like he set Abraham free. And because God has been working in Abraham's life, Abraham passes the test and his future is transformed. No longer is Abraham gonna be primarily remembered as the man who failed. No, he is a man who had faith, enough faith to sacrifice his only son if that was what it took to follow God. And because Abraham is willing to lay down the thing more important to him than anything else in the world, God blesses him and gives him abundance. God gives Abraham even more than Abraham had been willing to give God. God not only gives Isaac back to Abraham, but in verses 16 to 18, he also gives him these amazing promises about how he's going to bless Abraham and his family in the future and how he's going to bless the world through Abraham and his family in the future. It's incredible. But it still doesn't answer one of our most pressing questions about the story. How? could God command Abraham to do something so terrible in the first place? Like even if God never meant for Abraham to kill Isaac, why would he tell him to do it in the first place? Out of all the tests possible, why did he have to choose one that's so disgusting and cruel and seemingly opposed to his nature? And to answer that question, we have to step back and gain some perspective on what's happening here see abraham throughout his life he had struggled with idolatry and when i say idolatry i don't mean he had statues in his tent that he would bow down to and worship no i mean he had things other than god that controlled his heart on the functional level of day-to-day life that's what an idol is it's it's anything that takes priority over god in your life I'll say that again because it's important an idol is anything that takes priority over God in your life. And throughout his life, Abraham had at various times idolized safety and security and having things in place for the future over everything else. And he had done this over and over again. And these were the causes of his biggest failures in life. He lied about his wife being his sister. Why? Because he feared for his safety. He made an idol of safety. He used his wife's servant and slept with her to get a kid. Why? because he feared not having an heir to carry on the family line in the future once he was dead. And he made an idol of having an heir. And now all Abraham's hopes for safety, security, heritage, they all rested on Isaac. If there was anything on the planet that was competing with God for superiority of his heart, it was Isaac. Isaac, the greatest gift of Abraham's life was also his greatest spiritual danger. Isaac was the thing that most deeply threatened to keep Abraham from complete obedience and devotion to God. And the problem with idols is they take us captive. See, the reason we choose to serve idols in the first place is they make us promises. Idols aren't typically bad things. They're typically good things that we try to make ultimate because we believe they can give us what we really want and need in life. So the idol of money promises us comfort and security. It says, if you get me, I'll give you what you really want in life. The idol of sex promises us excitement and belonging. The idol of success promises us respect and authority. So we chase these things. We make sacrifices to get them because we we want what we think they can give us. And there are three problems with pursuing idols. First, idols can never give us what they promise us. How many millionaires spend large amounts of time stressed about their money? They chase the money because it promised them security, but now that they have it, they realize it could all be gone in an instant. I mean, look at this past year and the stock market crash. That's terrifying if your identity is built on your money. That keeps them awake at night, despite the fact that they have lots of money because money can never give them the security that it promised. Or how many people who idolize sex are lonely? They chase sex because they thought it would give them a place to belong, but their string of one night stands hasn't led to any lasting relationships. And they wonder whether there's any hope of ever finding love. Idols give us glimpses of what they promise, but they can never fulfill those promises long-term. So idols never give us what they promise. Second, all idols call us to make sacrifices. You know, we instinctively cringe at God's command here for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but in reality, all of our idols ask us to make the same types of sacrifices all the time. The only difference is that God's plan all along was to give Isaac back to Abraham while the idols simply want to take. Here's what I mean, how many people in Hong Kong right now are sacrificing their children on the altar of success? How many parents have outsourced their role as parents and disengaged from their kids' lives all in the name of working hard to give my kids a better future? How many kids in our city are growing up as semi orphans being raised by someone who's not their parent because their own parents are too busy to ever spend time with them? Idols call us to make great sacrifices but unlike god never with the goal of giving us back what we're giving up you know i realized my own tendency to do this this week this week justine told me she was frustrated because sometimes when i'm around judah i seem distracted i do things like read or look at my phone as i reflected on what justine said to me i realized i've accepted this narrative from society that my worth and value comes from developing myself and growing as a person getting better at my job. And I do that through learning things and reading and staying engaged. And I want to be a valuable and successful person. So I try to use my time to learn stuff and develop myself so I can do a better job at loving and serving people in my work. And I was following this idolatrous view of value and success because I want the things these idols promise me And this idolatrous view of worth and success was leading me to sacrifice my time with Judah in pursuit of its promises. And it's so sneaky because look what was happening. I was failing to love my son in the name of trying to develop myself and grow so I can do a better job loving people. And God was calling me through Justine to lay down that idol. And notice God calling me to lay down those false narratives of value and success. It doesn't rob me of my ability to love people or to be successful. It actually opens the door for me to be more loving to the people right in front of me, Judah in that moment, and more successful in the things that really matter in life, like being present with the people around you. Idols call us to sacrifice important things because they want to destroy us. God calls us to sacrifice important things in order to give them back to us in a better and fuller form than we've we've ever had them before. And in a way that's, that's finally safe for us to interact with them without them being a danger to us. So idols never give us what they promise. Idols call us to sacrifice, but not for our good like God does. And third, the third problem in pursuing idols is that they will never sacrifice for us. See, if you lay down everything important in life for the sake of pursuing money or sex or success or anything else other than God, in the end, those things will fail you. They won't care how much you did for them, they will let you down. No amount of money will be able to cure your cancer. Your old and worn body will, be, will cease to be attractive and desirable for sex. Your company will replace you with someone younger who has more potential to succeed in the future. But God, God loves us enough to sacrifice for us. Notice throughout today's passage, there are a couple of key words that are repeated. 10 times it mentions that Isaac is Abraham's son. And three more times it adds to that, the fact that Isaac is Abraham's only son. Clearly God wants us to catch this and notice this. And he points it out explicitly in verse 12, again, after Abraham passes the test. And he says, the fact that you were willing to sacrifice your son, your only son is the ultimate proof of your faithfulness to God. Now fast forward about 2000 years, this area of mount moriah where abraham almost sacrificed isaac it has grown it has developed it is a thriving metropolis that we now know as jerusalem and into jerusalem walks another son another only son this son is the heir to the promises to abraham but there's there's something special about him because he's not just any son he is god's son god's only son and Jesus God's only son. He was arrested. He was beaten just like Isaac. The wood where he would die was laid on Jesus back and he carried it to the place where he would die. Jesus was laid down on that wood on the cross. And as the Roman guards stretched out their hands and took the hammer and nail to slaughter him, no voice spoke from heaven no ram got caught in the thicket to save the day. The hammer fell, the nails pierced his hands and feet, and Jesus died. See, God knew the full force of the pain he was asking Abraham to experience because he went through the pain of losing his only son himself. And why? Why did Jesus endure this agony? Why did God have to go through the pain of his only son who he loves dying? It was for you and it was for me. Jesus died to rescue us from our rebellion against God. He died to rescue us from placing other things as higher priorities in our lives than God. He, he died to save us from our idolatry. And in the moment that Jesus died, we had the ultimate proof that God is better than any of our idols and more worthy of our worship and praise than any of our idols. And how can we know this? For the same reason that God knew Abraham truly loved and trusted him because he did not spare his son, his only son from me, from you. So what Paul tells us in Romans chapter eight, verse 32, the ultimate proof of God's love and generosity to us is the fact that he gave us his only son. So there's nothing else that he will withhold from us if we truly need it. Church, God is worthy of all our praise, all our worship, all our obedience. He's worthy of us laying down our idols and sacrificing them so that we can pursue him because he loves us in a way that no idol ever can or ever will. Yes, his commands, they they may seem hard, but they're for our good. He's proved that he's working for our good because he gave us his only son. So we can trust him. We can obey him because we have the ultimate proof of his love for us no matter what he calls us to do. He gave us his only son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that Although our idols make false promises, you make true ones. That although our, although our idols call us to sacrifice because they want to destroy us, you call us to sacrifice because you want to save us. Thank you that although our idols never sacrifice for us, you gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. God, teach us to see the beauty of that this week, teach us to trust you this week, teach us to, to Lift you and our devotion to you above our idols this week. Make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.